Hey folks, Scott Weingart here, and this is the first of my lectures from Smack Gold. And I gotta say, when I was first giving this lecture, I, I felt a little bit let down after giving it. And the reason was that it was on the opening session, and there were so many inspiring talks, non-clinical talks, talks about mindset, Victoria Brazel's talk on tribes. I mean, just such good stuff. And this was a clinical talk, and uh, I'm like, oh, I didn't inspire. I listened to it again. It's it's not a bad talk, and uh, I hope you like it, and I'd love to hear your comments about it. Now, before we go into it, I have a few things to tell you. I always have a few things to tell you at the beginning of this stuff. Uh, first off, some of the topics here are kind of controversial, and I had to fit it into 20 minutes, but over the next two weeks, we're going to expand on all the controversial stuff. Uh, we'll talk about why I still believe in epinephrine and the pharmacology behind it. Got a lot of questions about that. We'll talk about VSE. In fact, I'm going to bring on Rob McSweeney of Critical Care Reviews, and we're going to talk about uh, whether we should be using epi, whether we should be using vasopressin and steroids in addition to the epi, and a little bit about knowledge translation in critical care. So we'll cover all that. So two pitches. The first one, uh, on June 10th, Tuesday, June 10th, I'm co-director for the uh, Neurological Emergencies and Neurocritical Care Conference given in New York City. If you're around on June 10th, uh, you should come to that day of the conference. You should come to the entire thing if you're interested in uh, neurocritical care because the conference is always fantastic. But you can sign up for just one day. And on that day, June 10th, I'll be speaking. Rich Levitan will be speaking. Uh, Rob Arnfeld, ultrasound master in emergency medicine, will be speaking. Uh, that'll be the morning. And then the afternoon session is cutting-edge cardiac arrest with uh, guess who? Yeah, Nicholas Nielsen, you know, the guy who did the TTM trial. He'll be there debating on the topic of should we be doing 36 or 33, a whole bunch of incredible cardiac arrest talks. So if you're around Tuesday, June 10th, come on down. I have it in the show notes at mcrit.org slash 125. Uh, you'll find the brochure. You should come that day. Uh, I don't think it's very expensive at all to do with the one-day session. And if you're interested in neurological emergencies, come for the whole thing. That's pitch number one. Pitch number two, I was supposed to since March, spend an entire month asking you to please, please join the MCRIT CME site. And I keep putting it off because I just hate doing these pitches. But I do need your help to support the cost and bandwidth of this show. And if you are a resident, stop listening. I do not want your money. But if you aren't attending, if you're making a real salary and MCRIT is valuable to you, please come over to cme.mcrit.org and sign up for the CME. Not because you need the CME necessarily, but because that makes it tax deductible or write-offable by your department and support the show. Please. Uh, it, this is public radio model, meaning it's free for everyone, but uh, we're going to ask you to pay if you are making good salary and this is helpful to you. Okay, that's enough of this. At some point, I'll do a complete month of pitching this to you, but not today. Today, let's talk about some intra-arrest. So, I'm going to talk to you about the new version of intra-arrest management. I was going to talk to you about post-arrest, and then, unfortunately, the TTM trial was published and screwed up everything. And I've only done three cases at 36, and I refuse to talk about anything that I don't feel a true mastery of. So I changed topics, and we're going to talk about intra-arrest instead. And I feel we've now gotten to the point of true cookbook medicine, and I'm not happy with it. I have perpetrated the same catchphrase of all that matters is good CPR, early diff-fib, and post-arrest cooling. And what I realize, as I have said this on the podcast a number of times, it means I've closed my mind off to any possibility of other things. It's the negative thinking that Rich was talking about. That 
I basically induced in myself a sense of nihilism for other therapies where like no drugs work, nothing else is out there, all that matters is you pump hard on the chest. And it's been further perpetrated by courses like ACLS and the similar varieties across the world. And this is a course that's created by good people. But the course is bound by what's easily doable and not what's possible. And when you think about it, the people in this room, some of the best resuscitationists out there, are doing the same course, are using the same protocols as the dermatologists. That's problematic. That's bothersome. We need truly advanced cardiac life support for us, for the resuscitationists, for the experts, for the ones who are not going to be bound by what's easily doable, but bound by what is absolutely best for the patient. So we'll talk about it. And I'd like to say this stuff is the future, but it's not. Almost everything I'm going to talk about in the next 15 minutes was discussed in an article in 1997 by this gentleman, Max Harry Weil. And uh, I'll, I'll give the link to this at the end. You should read it. He talks about everything that I think is the future of cardiac resuscitation. So let's go through this. Airway, patient comes in, cardiac arrest. They weren't able to intubate in the field. I just pop in an LMA because it's quick. I don't have to think about it. And now I have an airway and I have some time to assess the situation. But I no longer leave in the LMA. I no longer leave in the supraglottic airway. And last year we were talking about this study done in swine showing there's actually occlusion to carotid blood flow from some of these supraglottic airways. And it's being done in humans now, and we'll see how that turns out. But this is not the true reason I don't leave in the supraglottic airway anymore. What I've realized is that the ceiling pressure of these devices don't allow ventilations to occur during the downstroke of compression. They don't have enough ability to seal under those pressures. It means all your breaths are being given on the upstroke when you want to have your heart filling, when you want that venous return happening. And I haven't seen great studies on this, but I've seen enough to make me want to, when I have a moment, ask the airway doc to put a tube in. And now, because of the new technologies, things like video laryngoscopy, things like the use of a bougie, there's absolutely no reason to stop compressions to make this happen. And in fact, uh, we've trained our folks to say, if the airway doc asks you to stop, ignore them. The only person allowed to stop compressions is the team leader. And there is no indication to stop compressions for airway. And if I have to leave that superglottic, great. But to make it even easier, we've custom bent a fiber optic stylet to exactly fit into our particular laryngeal mask airways. And this slides down like butter. You get a view of the cords and pop the tube in. And now there's absolutely no reason to uh, hinder the resuscitation at all. And then, of course, the only acceptable means to confirm your tube during a cardiac arrest is continuous waveform end tidal CO2. And if you don't have it, and you don't have it during the entirety of the arrest, I think we're not doing as well as we could by the patient. So that's airway. Let's talk about breathing. So Cliff Reed and I, we did a podcast on this book, On Combat. And Rich has talked a bunch about this stuff as well in his talk. And what you realize is that when your heart rate is thrumming, when your 
pounding, you have no time perception whatsoever, and you cannot be trusted to have a BVM in your hand. It should never happen during a cardiac arrest that someone has the bag. And yet in the States, our respiratory therapists are trained to immediately take the patient off the ventilator, and we fought against that. And in fact, when a cardiac arrest comes, they go right on to the mechanical ventilator, because this is a machine that's capable of doing what it needs to do, giving a set tidal volume and a set respiratory rate. But you have to do something special here. You have to raise the peak pressure limit on that vent, or else it will not give breaths during those compressions. And you're back to that same problem you were with, with the superglottic airways. So set your peak pressure limits high, and now let the machine do its work, and you don't have to worry about it anymore. And you have your end title up there to confirm it's working. You set a low rate to not impede that venous return. Circulation. Quality compressions. Very important. Timing of them is very important. I used to just recommend buying a $5 metronome and using that. I don't recommend that anymore, and I'll tell you why. And then what we found, and now we have proof from the reanalysis of the Rock Prime trial just published, is that peri-shock pauses are bad. You do not want any interruption at all in the time around your shocks. And even compression fraction is not nearly as important as this. You need to have continuous CPR all throughout the period of the patient being defibrillated if you want it to work successfully. Now, we have some new technologies that can make that happen. There are monitors now that allow uh, see-through analysis of the patient's rhythm while compressions are ongoing. So now you don't have to do rhythm checks. You could just continue and look up at the screen and see your ventricular fibrillation. That eliminates the peri-shock pause. And then you don't want to have to stop the compressions during the shock itself. And now there was an article published in 2008 saying maybe hands-on defibrillation is okay. And then in 2012, there was another article saying maybe it's not. And that if you're feeling a little tingling as you're doing compressions, that actually means you're part of a current circuit that may lead to your heart stopping. Now, I didn't know what to do with this. So for six months, I was the only person, when I was in the department, allowed to have my hands on the patient when we shocked. And I took, I think, 22 shocks um, to see how it was. And it was a little tingle, no problem, um, until the 23rd, when I felt an uh, enormous jolt of electricity move up my entire arm, and it was numb for about 40 minutes. And then we said, maybe it's not the best idea to do hands-on defibrillation. Um, so now we just, if we uh, have to, uh, use hands, which is less than desirable, as I'll talk about in a second. We just, uh, we don't do that, I'm clear, you're clear, we're all clear garbage. No. When the person's ready to shock, we say, all right, ready to shock, and you lift up your hands one inch off the chest, you shock, and then you immediately put them back down. And that's how we've taken care of this problem. So the gloves won't protect you, take your hands off, but none of this was a good solution. This is the good solution. Mechanical CPR is the way of the future, and I have absolutely no mortality benefit to show that, and we have three trials right now showing that these devices don't cause the patient to leave the hospital uh, with a higher rate. They don't leave neurologically intact. Another one was just published yesterday in the JAMA. You're not going to have this be better than good quality CPR, but what you are going to have is a dramatic change in the atmosphere during a cardiac arrest. All of a sudden, you don't need seven people there in a line ready to trade off compressions. You put the machine on, and you just continue it throughout. You could see your rhythm through the compressions. You could shock with this device on. This is the future. I would spend more time talking about this, except Steve Bernard is coming to talk about this exact topic. So I'm simply going to say, I think in the future, this will be the way we are doing cardiac arrest. 
And then if you have one of these devices and the patient has the ability, uh, they either code it in front of you or you had a second to get a 12 lead and they have a STEMI, they have to go to the lab with CPR ongoing because they're going to benefit. The sooner they get that vessel open, the better they're going to do. And it's possible and it's studied and it's something we have to start implementing in our cardiac arrest centers. All right, let's talk about drugs. I'm still a believer in epinephrine. There's doubters out there. The pocket trial, when you really look at it and you know the backstory of what happened, to me, looks like it would have been a positive trial. This would have been the one. And unfortunately, because of truly evil recruitment issues, they weren't able to get their folks. But I think this was the study that actually showed it, that epi would work. But not the way ACLS is telling you to dose it. And I think that's where all the problems come from. And I'll come back to that in just a sec. If you believe in epi, if you're still giving it, even if you don't believe in it, then I feel you also should be giving vasopressin and steroids. Because this is a far higher level of evidence than anything we've had for drugs in ACLS. This is not one randomized controlled trial of adding vasopressin and solumedrol to epinephrine. They actually did two randomized controlled trials. And both of them showed neurologically intact survival at a higher rate if you add vasopressin and steroids to your epinephrine. So if you're giving any drugs at all, I think you should be doing this. If you're a true nihilist and you're not giving any, fine. That's not really something I could argue based on the evidence. But I'm doing it. Now, where's the face validity? Dan Davis in San Diego is looking at this. And what it turns out is epinephrine is good for getting ROSC. It's good for back perfusion to the coronaries. Vasopressin is good for the brain. Vasopressin is what's going to lead to cerebral perfusion. And they work differently. And they might benefit the patient by having both. And it turns out the steroids are synergistic with the vasopressin, and that's why that may have face validity. But I'm doing this until we have better evidence than two randomized controlled trials. Esmolol. Steve Smith, who's probably somewhere in the audience right now, uh, put this abstract here at SMAC. Refractory VF. Counterintuitively, the drug you want to reach for is probably going to turn out to be Esmolol to knock out the beta. Epi brings beta and alpha-2 to the table. We don't actually want that beta. And the patient has an endogenous sympathetic storming as well in the peri-arrest period. Esmolol may be the solution for refractory VF. I'm doing it in patients with pulse when I can't break them of their uh, ventricular tachycardia. And now, if I've gone down an arrest pathway and I can't shock them out of their V-fib, I reach for Esmolol. Same dose you'd give for SVT. It's cutting edge, but if you can't make things work with the standard therapy, this is what I'd go to. Now, this is not quite ready for prime time, but this was the first abstract in humans published by Keith Laurie and uh, the Yiannopoulos group uh, and Hennepin, and nitroprusside may be the microcirculatory resuscitation for cardiac arrest. And this was just a case series. It's not at the point where I'd recommend you guys start doing it yet, but look for this in the future when you're looking for the next new drug that may help. Let's talk about monitoring. I put a femoral arterial line in every single cardiac arrest without stopping compressions because it's incredibly beneficial to not have to do pulse checks. But more importantly, this is the way I dose my epi. I don't give 
epi every three to five minutes. It makes no sense, and it probably contributes to post-cardiac arrest cardiomyopathy. Instead, I dose my epinephrine based on the patient's diastolic blood pressure during compressions. Now, we have evidence for this, and I'll put all these slides up on uh, my site, but you're looking for a minimal coronary perfusion pressure of 15 millimeters of mercury. And lacking that, the patient will not come back, they will not get VF, and they will not be able to be shocked out of it. Now, we're not monitoring CVP, so you can't just guess at what the coronary perfusion pressure is. But generally, the CVP will hover around 25 or 30. So when you add that CVP to what the coronary perfusion pressure you want, a diastolic blood pressure of around 40 is my goal during a cardiac arrest. And I look up at that A-line tracing, and if with those compressions they have a diastolic greater than 40, they don't need another round of epi. And if they don't, that's when they get the drug. And this makes a ton of sense, and it was talked about in 1997 by Max Harry Weil. Why are we not doing it? Because you can't have an ACLS course that asks people to place arterial lines in the middle of an arrest. But we could do it. Waveform and tidal, it's not just a marker for the ET tube, though those tubes have a tendency to fall out sometimes, and you want to know that pretty quick. But it also is a marker of perfusion. It tells me how my compressions are going. It tells me when the patient gets ROSC. If you see that end tidal spike up by 10, this patient probably came back. They probably have a perfusing rhythm now. And then the last part of monitoring is you need to do an early ultrasound to look for reversible causes. I do the rush exam, rapid ultrasound for shock and hypotension. High map, we look at the heart, the IVC, we look at the Morrisons and other abdominal views, the aorta, and we look for pneumothoraces. We want to find reversible causes. But the future is that that transthoracic probe is not going to be the way we do it. These patients need transesophageal echo intra-arrest if you really want to get a good shot of that heart, if you really want to know what's going on. Mike Blavis in the States has done the preliminary work on this. It's eminently doable. My friend Rob Arnfeld is doing a study right now demonstrating a one-hour course is sufficient to get ED docs and intensivists up to speed to be able to do transesophageal echo for the sole purpose of monitoring a resuscitation like this. It's easier than the transthoracic. And we know how to stick things in the patient's mouths. Right, Rich? Yeah. So <laughs> let's talk human factors. Code should be quiet, just as Karim alluded to. It should be a totally seamless environment. Everyone should know their role. Everyone should know what they're doing. And there shouldn't be any noise. And now when you get the compressors out of the room, and when you get the grunting person pushing on the chest and you have a machine instead, that becomes possible. And now you have a cognitive environment where you could actually perform at your highest level. And then we like to add some music in as well. Uh, we made a smack uh, resuscitation playlist that you can find on the site, mcrit.org slash smack. Uh, I like the Rolling Stones personally during my arrest. And then let's talk about the most exciting thing that's been going on in the world of cardiac arrest resuscitation. ECPR, ECMO CPR, the ability to crash a patient onto full cardiopulmonary support in the midst of the arrest. Folks like Steve Bernard with the CHEER trial, my friends Joe Palezzo and Zach Shiner out in San Diego, and a host of other places are starting programs to be able to have intensivists or ED docs place patients on ECMO during the arrest. And this is within our skill set. It's what I've spent the past year training in, it's totally doable for any of us that are doing invasive procedures already. 
We have a website that's devoted to this that'll discuss this in far greater detail, edecmo.org. Please come over and check us out and find out why we think this is going to be the future of a viable patient who's not had a prolonged time until they started their CPR to be able to get them to somewhere to reverse the cause of their arrest. And what we're finding with this eCPR work is the time to CPR and pre-morbid state is all that matters. How quickly compressions were started after they arrested and what the patient was like beforehand. And the actual time of the code itself becoming irrelevant. We are having discussions of saves, 120 minutes of compressions, and the patient leaves the hospital neurologically intact. And it's not just a one in a million case. Every program that started this has these patients leaving the hospital with insanely long cardiac arrest time. This is changing the parameters of what we could expect out of cardiac arrest. So we're finally at the point, I think, where we truly can bring back the hearts that are too good to die. And I'm done with nihilism. I'm open-minded again about cardiac arrest. And I don't believe it could be cookbook medicine. And I don't believe the skin doctors could do the same job on a cardiac arrest that we can. So let's do cardiac arrest resuscitation by resuscitationists. Let's rewrite the books. And with that, I thank you so much for your attention.